Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Witness Docs from Stitcher. All episodes of Unfinished Deep South are available to binge listen on Stitcher Premium. Premium listeners get an ad-free experience, can listen to all the episodes of Unfinished Deep South right now, and play a key part in supporting our show and reporting. You can get a free month trial of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcherpremium.com and signing up with the code WITNESS. So if you want to see how the entire story unfolds right now, that's stitcherpremium.com, promo code WITNESS. In this episode, we'll talk a lot about lynching and racial terrorism. There are descriptions of disturbing images, so please take care while listening. In October 2018, Taylor and I moved with our son to Arkansas for a month so we could focus on reporting. By then, cooler weather had finally flowed down to the Delta. Halloween decorations had sprung up in people's yards, and so had a colorful crop of election signs. I'm campaigning for Cynthia Lucas for Justice of the Peace. Each day as we drove up to the old county courthouse to dig through records, we'd pass through a scrum of people. He's right there. Holding campaign signs. It seems like more signs showed up overnight. Shaking hands <laughs> and asking for votes. Creating the count of vote. Come out and vote. William Bill Wolf. Opposing candidates were smiling, making small talk, drinking coffee. Uh, we're actually not from here. Where y'all from? It was all so nice. Well, good. Come down here. That's how we do it down here. Which kind of stunned us because at the national level, things were pretty ugly. To the reason this is so you hate America very, very is what you're part. saying. The man accused of mailing homemade bombs to prominent Democrats. And the upcoming midterms were seen as a referendum on President Trump. And just before we'd come to Arkansas, there had been angry hearings in the Senate about Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. This is the most unethical sham since I've been in politics. The confirmation thrown into a tailspin by allegations of sexual assault dating back decades. Republicans largely rallied behind him. Judge Kavanaugh is one of the finest people that I've ever known. Democrats rallied against him. And if he has this violent background, then why should be a justice on the Supreme Court? And the whole thing was really tense. In Marion, that anger and fear, even the violent history of Crittenden County itself, could all seem pleasantly far away. But then, 
One day, it screeched back into view. What do you think about what's happening in Washington? This is a campaign ad that ran in support of an Arkansas congressman named French Hill, a white conservative supporter of President Trump. In the ad, two African-American women talk about why they're voting for Hill. And they compare the experience of Brett Kavanaugh to the experience of thousands of African-American men who were lynched after allegedly assaulting white women. Our congressman, French Hill, and the Republicans know that it's dangerous to change the presumption of innocence to a presumption of guilt, especially for black men. If the Democrats can do that to a white justice of the Supreme Court with no evidence, no corroboration, and all of her witnesses, including her best friend, say it didn't happen, what will happen to our husbands, our fathers, or our sons when a white girl lies on them? Girl, white Democrats will be lynching black folk again. African-Americans are a crucial voting bloc in Arkansas, and this ad was trying to convince them to vote Republican by invoking old trauma. I'm voting to keep Congressman French Hill and the Republicans because we have to protect our men and boys. We can't afford to let white Democrats take us back to bad old days of race verdicts, life sentences, and lynchings when a white girl screams rape. Paid for by Black Americans for the President's Agenda. We should note the ad was made by a super PAC, not Congressman Hill's campaign. And Hill condemned it as racist, which it is. But the ad didn't come out of nowhere. The people who created it knew the era of lynching was still close. The pain was still powerful. Later that fall, someone strung nooses in trees outside the Mississippi State Capitol with a sign that read, We're hanging nooses to remind people that times haven't changed. For most people, lynching is defined by those nooses in trees and by victims who are usually African-American. That's not wrong, but it's also not the only form lynching can take. And it's not what happened to Isidore Banks. So today, we take a step back from our investigation to ask, what actually is a lynching? And how did it come to be such an American practice? I'm Neil Shea. And I'm Taylor Hom. This is Unfinished, Deep South. Episode 5, A Very American Crime. At some point, we realized that to understand what happened to Isidore, we needed to understand how he was killed. Not just the specifics of his murder, but what lynching itself means. Today, Senator Harris and I are requesting that after a century, after a hundred years, and over 200 different bills introduced in this body, that we finally make lynching a federal crime in the United States of America. That's Senator Cory Booker, a Democrat from New Jersey. Back in 2018, as midterm elections raged on, Booker, along with fellow Democrat Kamala Harris and Republican Tim Scott, proposed a bill that would make lynching a federal hate crime. It passed the Senate in 2019. The House, meanwhile, has passed their own version of an anti-lynching bill. But before either can become law, the two chambers need to reconcile their bills and send one of them to the president. Part of the problem with outlawing lynching comes from disagreements over how to define it. I began investigating and then came to the inevitable question, what is a lynching then? This is Professor Ashraf Rushdie, and he's been researching and writing about lynching for years. I have written two books on lynching. One is called American Lynching, and the other is The End of American Lynching. 
Rushdie is a professor of African-American studies at Wesleyan University, and he's one of a few scholars who's looked at the uniquely American nature of lynching. Here's his definition. So lynching is an act of extra-legal collective violence by a group alleging pursuit of summary justice. In other words, a lynching is a crime committed by a group of people who take the law into their own hands and claim that justice is on their side. But Rushdie says lynching has changed over time. It hasn't always been associated with race. Before the Revolutionary War and during the Revolutionary War, they called themselves vigilance societies. Uh, so there were groups that identified themselves as the protectors of the, the moral values of this society. And they, uh, again, pursued summary justice against people they identified as public drunkards, people who were unfaithful to their marriage vows, people who were nuisances in various forms and would go to their houses and punish them. It was, again, an act of public shaming. In those days, victims weren't always killed. Sometimes they were just tarred and feathered and run out of town. After the revolution, lynchings got deadlier. At West, frontier justice became common in places where government was weak. Victims were usually people accused of murder or robbery. But in the South, lynchings became something else. Guilt or innocence didn't matter. The killings were often extremely violent, even sadistic. And they were almost always done in defense of slavery. In the decades before the Civil War, lynch mobs targeted hundreds of Southern whites and enslaved African Americans. Many were falsely accused of trying to start slave rebellions. Hearing your definition read aloud, I'm reminded of this idea of vigilantism, which is so deep in American culture and I don't know that a lot of people really think about it very often, but that's sort of the ultimate expression of American freedom and democracy, right? Like this idea that the people can just, they know best and they can get together and democratically decide to kill somebody. It's got this sort of weird veneer of righteousness to it. Very much so. It's an original and enduring feature of American political discourse and American violent practice. It's the, the vigilantes who always claim to have the people on their side. And it is this idea that a subset of the people are representative, not elected representative, but representative of the will of the people. It's, it's much older than American politics, obviously, but it is, in America, it's taken firm root and it's created a culture in which people believe that they have that sovereignty and that they have the rights over the bodies of other people as self-appointed representatives of the state. And, and you're right, that, that defines freedom. It's the freedom to do something to others. And in Marion, Arkansas, it was exactly that idea of freedom that allowed people to murder Isidore Banks with complete impunity. After the Civil War, four million formerly enslaved African Americans became free people. 
But the end of slavery didn't mean the end of white supremacy. And soon, lynching became a way to terrorize African Americans, to preserve racial and economic hierarchy. Scholars say most lynchings were actually about money or land. Rushdie and other scholars call this period the Age of Lynching. It lasted from roughly 1890 to 1930. And during this time, more than 4,000 African Americans were lynched. It happens that someone of African descent is lynched about every five days for 50 years. Every five days, a mob collects to end a life. Every five days. It's astounding. And yet, every expert we talk to agrees that these numbers are low. They're just an accounting of the most obvious lynchings, the ones reported on or advertised in newspapers or memorialized in postcards or souvenirs. But even more shocking than the number of victims is the number of people who turned out to watch. Hundreds, sometimes thousands of white people regularly attended lynchings during this era. It was so common that researchers coined a term for it, the spectacle lynching. You watch the lynchings in the late uh, 19th century. These are events that are pastimes and that people go to them exactly as they would have gone to a baseball game. It's a, it's a spectacle to view. It's an event like a baseball game. They know how it's going to be structured. They know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen. And it also has public transportation provided for it. These lynchings that were 15,000, 10 to 15,000 people attending, often the counties would run special railroad cars to bring in people from the surrounding communities. Mayors would cancel schools on those days. And then it would be conducted as, in, as a way that people were entertained. Pictures would be taken, as we know. People would bring their children, put them on their shoulders to show them this event. 10 to 15,000 people eating snacks, taking pictures, dads hoisting children onto their shoulders. Spectacle lynchings were most frequent in the South, but sometimes they occurred in the North and Midwest, especially as African Americans fled the South during the Great Migration. These lynchings were a community event. One happened in Isidore Banks's hometown of Rome, Georgia, when he was five years old. A newspaper article reported that nearly 4,000 people turned out for the hanging of an African-American man from a telephone pole after he was accused of assaulting a young white girl. Isidore probably carried the weight of that lynching with him his entire life. We've wondered if it might even have been part of the reason his family decided to leave Georgia a few years later. But Rushdie reminds us that these lynchings weren't just about terrorizing African-Americans. They were also about that white audience. The spectacle is done for the spectators. The spectators make the spectacle possible. It's something that is regular and regulated. It requires the participation of officials as well as non-officials. The mob is not a unruly mob. The mob is an organized mob. Photographs of these lynchings aren't hard to find. And they're beyond upsetting. In them... A sea of white faces swirls around a gallows, or a tree, or a light pole. When I've looked at them, I've been filled with rage and horror. Because beyond the victim's own rage, beyond how frightened and helpless they must have felt, 
beyond the fact that very few people were ever held accountable for any of these crimes. Beyond all of that is whiteness. It's impossible to not consider everyone in those crowds guilty. And it's impossible to ignore that they all look like me. I have no doubt that a lot of them would have considered themselves good citizens, good Christians, good Americans. And yet, there they are, casually celebrating the murder of African Americans. These are bodies. These are people. They come up, they're put somewhere. Pictures are taken of them. Often when they're still alive, there are you know, some lynching photographs are actually tableau that show the live body and then the dead body. The things that are done to their organs, to their bodies before they are killed, the things that are done to their corpses after they're killed, it's a frenzied activity. It is a sign of not just utter hatred, it's a sign of something more visceral, something driving somebody to take away all the signs of the humanity of the person. What they needed was something gone, something utterly removed from this world. It's denying that this person has a name, denying that this person is a person, that is a human being, denying the identity of the person. You know, there were also cases where people would break into the morgue and take the body out and desecrate it. So this suggests this need to affirm a right over that body even after death. In America, lynching has almost always been something white people do. And so it's really about whiteness and preserving white supremacy. In what ways did, did lynching uh, stabilize and promote uh, white supremacy? At the simplest level, the, the regular feature of black bodies either uh, hanged or burned or in some other way displayed for an entirely white group in a community was affirming this could not happen to you. You, the spectator will never be this person. So here was a way in which it could create the sense of who is safe and who isn't in this society. So it stabilized white identity and white supremacy. It stabilized it by saying, we're all in this together. We are a we. Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new. Because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun. FX's new international spy thriller The Veil starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge. Inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu.
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Lynching solidified whiteness brought the white bankers and planters together with the mechanics and sharecroppers. Lynchings told white people that at the end of the day, what mattered most was whiteness itself. Not class or power or pedigree. Not money either. Just look at Isidore Banks. He had more money than most white people, but it didn't save him. Whiteness was the trump card, the safe space. It was the mask that allowed white people to get away with murder for generations. Isidore Banks was lynched in 1954, more than 20 years after the age of lynching ended. But lynching didn't totally vanish from the South. So what happens to lynching during the 40s, 50s, and 60s? Like, how does it evolve? What does it become? What we get then is a lessening of the numbers, but not necessarily of the temper that had created those numbers in the past. So we have smaller mobs, they're more secretive. They don't necessarily even use the the methods of the 1920s where people were still publicly hanged from courthouse trees. They sometimes use the easiest thing they can find, which might be a bridge, for example. Um, they often secrete the body instead of display it. They try to put it away. A few factors drove lynching into decline. For one, they were simply less popular as support for civil rights grew, and as groups like the NAACP worked hard to change white attitudes about them. This period also marks the beginning of a shift toward mass incarceration and court-ordered executions, practices which came to disproportionately affect African Americans. Rushdie and other scholars say extrajudicial killings were, in some ways, just brought inside the justice system. But perhaps the most powerful anti-lynching force was actually economic. By 1954, lynching had be, had become a practice that the Chambers of Commerce recognized as having dire effects on a, on a town's future because places where lynchings happened became publicized. Publicity that led people to withdraw finance. You don't want to invest it in a place where A, your labor pool could be killed or B, your labor pool would be migrating out. Uh, This is also, you know, the era of the beginning of economic boycotts. So lynchings were something that you had to deny if they happened in your community 
because they had economic implications. Lynching was bad for business. Lynching was bad for business by the 1940s and 50s. In the 40s and 50s, African Americans were leaving the South in huge numbers, migrating north often to escape racial terrorism. This had a drastic effect on the Southern economy, which survived on cheap African American labor. And during this time, Isidore's hometown of Marion was also changing. Fields were being transformed into middle-class subdivisions, and interstate would soon connect Marion to Memphis and St. Louis. A big racing track was planned. It was not a good time for bad press or outside scrutiny. So right after Isidore was murdered in June 1954, the county sheriff and other local leaders moved quickly. They denied Isidore's killing was a lynching and insisted it had nothing to do with race. In many ways, Isidore's lynching was a model of the new and more secretive practice Rushdie described. The lynching was done in a secluded patch of woods. It wasn't advertised in the newspaper. And it was probably the work of a small group instead of a massive crowd. But while towns like Marion couldn't celebrate lynchings the way they'd done in the past, they still relied on familiar narratives to justify their violence. Lynchers and the advocates and defenders of lynchers would use the same story. We lynch because African-American men are raping white women. The accusation of rape occurred in only 25% of lynching cases. But the discourse of rape made it seem like every lynching was a defense of white women. To be clear, Isidore was never accused of rape. We only ever heard that some people thought he was having a relationship of some kind with a white woman, or that he had possibly said something inappropriate to one. But the truth didn't really matter, because the protection of white womanhood has always been at the center of white supremacy. This is not just in... in mobs and newspapers, but we find people from the American Medical Association using that very language, taking up the very same questions. How do we explain why it is that, that black men are raping white women so commonly? What, what deterioration happened in the black psyche since the end of slavery? So here's the American medical profession weighing in, using the language of medicine to talk about what is a social issue and and turns out a fabricated social issue. So when you have a discourse that's that powerful, that prevalent, it's impossible to fight it. Facts won't do it. And it's a discourse that smeared the whole race with stigma. And in the South during the 1950s, this narrative was still powerful. White womanhood was something that needed to be defended, protected, and held onto as racial barriers like segregation began to fall apart. And rape wasn't the only accusation. African-American men were lynched for just speaking to white women or glancing at them or refusing to step off the sidewalk for them. Perhaps the most famous case was that of Emmett Till, the 14-year-old boy who was lynched one year after Isidore and just a two-hour drive away from Marion. Emmett Till allegedly whistled at a white woman, or, depending on the story, he simply said something to her. Now it made sense why so many white people had come to believe rumors that Isidore had done something to a white woman. For them, those stories were always there, so old and familiar they felt true. 
Understanding this history helped us pierce through the cloud of myth and rumor that swirled around Isidore's case and placed his murder firmly within a tradition of killing that had for decades upheld white supremacy. So we had the context, but we still didn't have any suspects. Next time on Deep South, we turn back to our search for Isidore's killer and suddenly catch a break in the case. Who told you that? Somebody in town. Who told you that? Unfinished Deep South is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher and Market Road Films. Written and produced by us, Taylor Hom and Neil Shea. Editing by Peter Clowney, Gianna Palmer, and Tracy Samuelson. The show is produced by Laura Kalaluri and Stephanie Kariuki. Our executive producers are Lynn Nottage, Tony Gerber, Peter Clowney, and Chris Bannon. Our mixing engineer is Casey Holford. Special thanks to our fact checker, Michelle Harris. Deep South features blues, folk, and gospel music performed by Hubby Jenkins. Original theme music and score by Casey Holford, with musicians Ryan Thornton and Dan Costello. Special thanks to the extended family of Eastor Banks, who gave generously of their time, their patience, and their memories. Thanks also to Professor Margaret Burnham and the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern University, to Willie Gammon, and to the 78 Project. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. This episode of Plant Killers will explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New Miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to Miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.